0: to the final episode of season one of rigged. At the end of our previous episode, Luke, Ryan, Ilias, Chris, and Jamie discussed Sonia smoking crack before she testified. In this episode, they review emails between Sonia and her prosecutor bosses to see if any of them caught on to having someone high on crack as an expert witness. We also discuss what everyone learned from the first season of Raked. As always, please like, subscribe, and review, and thank you for your support this season. Now enjoy the season finale of rigged.
1: So she was smoking crack before she would testify, and I want people to um, keep that in mind. So now I've shared, uh, so I've, I've obtained a lot of emails between pretty much or, uh, thousands and thousands of emails between Farrakh and prosecutors. And um, it's just very, very interesting if you keep in mind that she was smoking crack heavily in, you know, around this time, this is this is 2010 that this interview from uh, Joseph Uraldo, Ural, uh Uralano of Berkshire County and uh, ADA of Berkshire County and Sonia. And um, this was, June or March 4th of 2010. He says, Sonia, you are the superstar witness for our office. The blank case is being handled by Robert Sullivan on Tuesday. I'm going to forward him this email to make sure he gets back to you today. Thank you for always being on the ball. So can I
0: just interject here? As Yes. How these trials happen, for people who, who don't know, is in every criminal case, uh, there's a what's called a sequestration order. So witnesses uh, are not allowed to be in the courtroom when other witnesses are testifying. So if you go to a, a busy courthouse like Springfield, and you kind of go through the halls, you'll see these cases where where there'll be witnesses getting ready to testify, and and it'll be a bunch of cops and and chemists who are just waiting for their turn to get on there. So Sonia Farrakh, who's testified that she made a habit of getting high before testifying, would often find herself out in the hall, literally sitting next to the police expert that the prosecution would put on to say, I know what a crack Uh, user looks like and the defendant in this case obviously is not a crack user he's a crack dealer and that expert testimony would be given by a guy who was literally sitting next to somebody who was high on crack probably talking about the patriots in the the moments before went on the stand so I, i i every time i think about that it just blows my mind that um police officers were allowed for many years to go in and give that kind of soft expert testimony.
2: Well, even, I mean, I'm sure you've both read your share of police reports where the officer says, and I could tell by the glassy look on his, you know, and and the odor of whatever. I mean, if you smoke crack, is there not some sort of odor? I have no idea. But I just feel like the, the, um, the very keen perception skills police have honed in the process of writing police reports seem to be absent uh, in this case.
1: Well, and, and that's a great point by both of you guys. I mean, they, they get up there and they say, oh, we know what crackheads look like. We know what these crackheads are. Here, Sonia, come tell us about the weight of these uh, of this drugs that you tested, like clearly who had just freaking smoked crack five minutes beforehand. It, it's such a joke. The whole thing is, if they didn't say that, then, you know, it it would be one thing, because I I honestly couldn't, I mean, we could all be on crack right now. I have no idea what anyone looks like who's on crack. But um, these people get on and get into court and say they know, they can tell a crackhead, they can tell what a crackhead looks like. And meanwhile, they literally were throwing a crackhead up there to lock people in jail and give expert testimony. It's unreal. So the next email is between Sonia and um, an ADA, Robert Schmidt, said ADA from April 16th of 2011 has to do with uh, this scientific approach for uh, marijuana. I looked up my notes for the case that he was working on, but I did not get. The total net weight of the marijuana in the 13 bags since the new marijuana law did not take effect until January 2nd, 2009, and this submission was brought to the lab on December 17th, 2008. I did, however, get the total gross weight of the marijuana in the 13 bags, as well as the gross weight of the bag I analyzed. The bag I analyzed was a gallon-sized Ziploc uh, plastic bag. I've looked through my notes for the past year and found 12 times that I analyzed and calculated the net weight of a sample with vegetable matter, marijuana, in a gallon sized Ziploc bag. The average weight of the empty uh, gallon sized Ziploc bag was 9.37 grams. Um, even assuming that the weight of the gallon size Ziploc plastic bag that I analyzed in this case is three times the high end of that range. The net weight of the marijuana in the one bag I analyze is still 100 grams, way over the ounce limit, but definitely under the 50-pound trafficking limit. Plus, with 13 bags, I would assume that this would be a distribution case, case with penalties higher than that of a simple possession. I hope that this has helped. If, if you need... The exact net weight of all 13 bags, the submission will need to be resubmitted to the lab through the Springfield PD. Please feel free to contact me should you have any more questions. Thank you, Sonia.
2: Well, that sounded like some science right
1: there. (laughs) (laughs) And again, she's talking about trafficking and distribution and different kinds of like you know, penalties for these cases. She's just supposed to be testing samples. This is what drives me crazy about these cases. Clearly, these chemists knew all about the laws and wanted to help prosecutors, like, get... They knew prosecutors were going for certain charges and they wanted to help them get there. That is clear to me. Is that not clear to you guys? I, I don't know. Am I out? Way on a limb on that? There.
3: I mean, it just makes me mad just looking at this. Like, right. Like, I mean, these are people's lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, she took the time to look through her notes for the past year and come up with the net weight average and didn't just like do the work in this case. <laughs> <laughs> like just weigh it all out. I, don't think I...
1: <sighs> it's, un- it's unbelievable. So here is someone whose name I can't, Anne Eurings, I, I can't even, I'm not even going to go for it. She's a, a West, she's a uh, ADA from Western Mass. She, um, I, I can post this up on Twitter for, for people to see some of these emails. It's always fun. She sent something to Sonia on uh, December 1st of 2009. Sonia, great job on the stand, especially without any prep time today or yesterday. The defendant needed to go to jail and thanks to you, he did. As for tomorrow, you are off the hook and as far as going to Holyoke District Court. The case is getting continued since it may uh, be indicted in superior court. So you just have the uh, you just have Stewart's case in Springfield. Thanks again, Anne. He, the defendant, needed to go to jail, and thanks to you, he did. I'll just leave that out there. And then, I, I mean, a lot of these between. Um, I could, I, I'll, I'll go on and get some of the, uh, and, and get some of the more outrageous ones. But again, to me, this, this hasn't been fully explored. Ilias knows that I, I, hammer this all the time, but the, the, these witnesses are are not supposed to be biased, and I, and I think I'm being naive because I don't work in the system and I don't um, understand. But it, it just seems to me that the the DAs here have biased all of these witnesses and and literally tell them that they're responsible for keeping the streets safe do you guys see that as a common theme through these emails
3: yeah I, I think we talked about earlier I mean it's it's fine to tell one of your witnesses like oh you did a good job and you know that portion of your testimony was really clear thanks but not like that guy needed to go to jail thank you and I'll call you next week you know that sort of thing is
2: <laughs> right it's it's overly suggestive and I think that the uh, the there is data and it's it's gr- a growing body of data that suggests that the more suggestion of outcome you make the more the results skew in your favor and and in this context the more someone's rights are violated uh, you know, if you make no suggestion and these people are really calling balls and strikes sort of neutrally, uh, then, uh, then at least nobody can be um, uh, 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 overly worried that they somehow are going to be targeted for an improper uh, a review. But when you're overly suggestive and there's data now showing that fingerprints are prone to this, um, uh, I think there's also, um, DNA issues that are emerging. Uh, and, uh, and obviously we know that for years, the FBI and others peddled junk science with hair and carpet, carpet fiber and high velocity explosives. So there's a tendency to already pedal garbage. And now you don't help it when you tell the person, I really need more garbage. And that's what, that's what happened here. And I think we need to, and Jamie, you're absolutely right. We need to be Frank, that that in in many ways prosecutors are the root cause and the blame of this. I mean, I think they're not the victims. They're not the ones who didn't know this was going on. They were they were basically begging for stuff like this to go on.
0: And, and I and I always return to the, the the Massachusetts top 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 prosecutor at the time went to the Supreme Court two years before this and said that these are neutral and detached scientists and. That's where, I mean, these kinds of emails are are obviously biased. They're on the law enforcement team. They're part of the law enforcement prosecution team. and, and, And that's a problem. But not being honest about that is, I think, in many ways, an even bigger problem. And it's a systemic one. I mean, the people who are running these labs by this point had grown up in a system where the Massachusetts legislature, which, again, is starving these labs for money. Had created a system where um, samples uh, tested that led to convictions would um, come back to the lab by way of, of, of a drug uh, lab fund. That they were being funded by positive results for many years, and for labs that just didn't have a lot of money, th- then, you know, this could be the difference between overtime or no overtime, or keeping a, a last hire uh, as a recession shows up. So the, the way in which it was structured, um, created and fostered these, these inappropriate relationships that, uh, were kept from fact finders that were kept from defense attorneys. And as Ilya said, quite eloquently, you know, created in this feedback loop where the people giving the testimony, uh, were, were, were entered that room with, with a kind of a predetermined uh, outlook that in close calls i'm sure time and time again caused them to come down on the side of prosecution as opposed to what a, somebody who didn't have a kind of stake in the outcome would have otherwise done
2: right in in civil uh, litigation the first question you ask the other side's expert uh, who's a you know paid witness right so everybody knows where the loyalty is but the first question and and, and the answer can be devastating is uh, you know are you an expert for both, for both uh, sides? And the expert that says, no, I only do defense work. Uh, you know, that that's a problem. Uh, and I don't, I don't retain experts that will say I only work for plaintiffs or only work for defendants um, for that reason.
1: So there's an email here, but let me just make one point before I get, um, so to, to piggyback on everything that's that's been said, I always give an example of this as that these chemists, first and foremost, are human beings, right? So if a, a high-level law enforcement official, which an ADA, I mean, you can argue high-level, whatever, but to a chemist, an ADA is absolutely a high-ranking uh, law enforcement official. If they come to you and tell you, hey, you know those drugs that you got to test? Yeah, that's for this guy who is a total scumbag and needs to be locked in jail. So please get me those results ASAP, because if you don't, like he could get released out of prison and we need need those results as fast as possible. And so you're the chemist, you take the drugs back to your bench, you start testing them and there's a problem, they come back negative. And coming back negative should not be a problem. If you're, as the highest ranking law enforcement official said, if you're an independent chemist, Um, In front of the Supreme Court, if you're an independent chemist, who gives a crap if it comes back negative or positive? It doesn't matter. But you were just told that these are drugs that uh, belong to someone who could endanger people's lives by a law enforcement official. So what are you going to do? You know, That's the question. If it comes back negative, you test it again, it comes back negative. What do you do? And I think the answer that we know is you say it was positive or you make it positive, right? Or you that tested is, enough time, That's logical to me.
2: Go ahead. Or you tested enough times that if you do get a positive result, uh, that that in and of itself is sort of meaningless. I mean, I think the, uh, it's never been explained by the OIG why you needed to test samples uh, five times. I, I I recall that that some were tested as many as five times. I think there were some that were tested more. Why would you need five tests? Right. Uh, I mean, you don't get, you know, it's, it's like, a, imagine a road test where you like crash into the cones and the guy is like, well, you know, just try it four more times. Um, it <laughs> doesn't work that way. All right.
1: I took my SATs 12 times, but that was just me. <laughs> that, the other thing that I,
0: I think I, it's sometimes easy to forget, and I'm guilty of forgetting too, is at the end of the day, if you took a, the same lab standard of, uh, pure cocaine, and you ran it through uh, the the sophisticated instruments that they have, it would produce a certain um, spectra. 15 minutes later, if you run it again, it's going to produce another spectra, and they're not going to be exactly the same. Every time a, a chemist does this comparison, there's differences. And at the end of the day, it is a judgment call in every case. This isn't. This isn't like DNA evidence. Drug lab chemistry is an inexact science, and so it really the judgment involved is everything. If you really push chemists, they they are forced to. There is no like standard where you know. It, it now it's too far away to say it's the same sample, or now it's close enough. It's all like my training and experience tells me that this is the same. Chemical composition that I can, um, or not. And, and, and that is, I think, something that gets overlooked in this process. I would recommend to anybody listening uh, the work of James Shello, uh, this brilliant guy. He's, he has, he just came out with another version of his book on how to create a drug analyst. And, and he really takes the position that it's a confidence game. He's somebody steeped in a scientific background happened to become a great lawyer and um, is, is one of these critics of the, uh, of the underlying science. Even when you're at a laboratory, when it has all the safeguards and quality control, he just doesn't believe in the science here. And I think he makes a compelling argument as to why
1: it really is kind of a crock. Right. And, it, and I agree with him 100%. I've worked in biotech. I'm not a scientist, but I've worked in the biotech industry for 17 years and this is bullshit. I mean, it's total bullshit. It, it Luke, is. Can you,
2: can you repeat the title of the book? Cause I don't know if it may have cut out. Um, but
0: yeah, uh, I'll, 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 I'll do a little, on uh, my side, uh, computer here. I'll get you the title. It's, uh, um, but it's James Shellows, uh, is, is the author and, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get okay. it.
2: Um, and you know, Luke, you alluded to Martha Coakley's, um, Um, oral argument in front of the United States Supreme Court earlier. Uh, But, you know, she said also that that this is just a machine. I mean, you don't even need a person, right? She said it was a machine that does this. Um, And therefore, it's the same, you know, it it, it doesn't matter who operates it. The results are uh, essentially uh, unchangeable. And we know that that's not true. Um, Not only the subjective element, but the fact that there's like a multi- point process has to be done a certain way. And we know that different people had different approaches. Um, you know you couldn't even agree on how you weigh something in that lab. Right. So how are you gonna say that it was just a machine? Uh, and so I think uh, I think the myth um, was compounded by the fact that the government had been lying to us and itself for so long that nobody realized that there's an extraordinarily dangerous and unregulated human element. And one point I forgot to observe, Jamie, when the state police took over the lab in Amherst in July of 2012. And as far as I can tell, and as far as the Netflix show suggested, and as far as anything that anyone's ever read to me, it suggests they did one interview in October and they did something else that I mean, in what way did they take over the lab? I mean, if someone took over my job and I barely saw them, I wouldn't even consider that a takeover. So I don't know what that was that they did in July, but it wasn't in my book a takeover.
1: Right. And so we have, we've talked earlier in the episode about accreditation, right? And to Luke's point about James Shello and what he was talking about, accreditation does not matter. It, it matters if if you're a like a Fortune 500 pharmaceutical, and you're actually and you're getting audited by third party regulators, right? These people, the the most they'll be audited by is the FDA or not the FDA but the DEA, right? I I really don't think if the DEA finds something in these labs that could affect thousands of criminal cases that they're going
3: to say a single word about it. Well, that's one. strangely enough, I remember talking with Luke in the summer of 2016 saying like, gosh, Amherst is violating like all of these federal regulations. And, you know, I I don't know if you specifically remember that, but there is a laundry list of, you know, things that had to do with security, uh, you know, record keeping, uh, especially with regards to the standards that they just weren't doing. Um, it it sort of blew my mind when I was doing that legal research to find out like how many illegal things that the lab was up to. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So
1: I have an email here. So uh, from October 21st of 2009, and it's from between Sonia and Thomas uh, or Matthew Thomas. An ADA um, from out west. When I, and it's Sonia, when I returned from vacation in early October, there was a note on my desk saying that you had requested a copy of my notes and data for drug lab number, blah, and that Jim Hanchet had sent them to you. Yesterday, I had a voicemail from a public defender attorney uh, Zings and blah, blah, blah. she gives the contact information, indicating uh, that he wanted to talk with me about the GCMS on that case. I wanted to check with you before returning his call as I am not sure if this is the way I'm supposed to communicate with him. I'm guessing that one of the questions will be regarding why he only got the data for blank and not the other two, But I'm not sure if there is something else that he wants to discuss. If that is the only question he has, I would have no problem faxing you the information for all three submissions so you could give him a copy. Thank you, Sonia. And then um, uh, Matthew Thomas responds uh, that same day. Uh, It would be great if you could send me everything in the case. I don't think you need need to fax it. Regular mail is fine. This is 2009, by the way. Who's faxing? You you don't have an obligation to speak with the defense attorney. He had questions I couldn't answer regarding the testing process. I think he has a science background. I'm on trial Wednesday, but if you have questions, he gives his personal cell phone number. Like, (laughs) she... She can't even just talk to a, a defense attorney. I mean, that, that's the, that's what strikes me about that. Like she can't even, a, a defense attorney is just wanting to ask her questions about her testing process. And she's like, oh my God, I have to call the DAs right now. I can't believe this guy's trying to talk to me. Like, does that not seem odd to you guys? That really struck me.
3: Well, if you're part of the prosecution team, they usually check with the ADA involved before getting back to the defense But uh, Yeah, that
1: that might just be my naivete then. But still, I mean, clearly that goes into, you know, obviously being on the prosecution team. Uh, Okay, go ahead. Um, So this is, I have an email here between uh, Medea Wasserman and Sonia from February 14th of 2012. And start, Sonia, I hope I, uh, Sonia says, sorry, I hope I didn't screw up your case beyond repair. I don't believe that I said anything that was not on the drug receipt and or certificate, i.e. number of bags, which the Springfield uh, Police Department was given copies to. And I know I didn't say anything about the defense strategy, specifically about this case. I'll make sure that it doesn't happen again. It's never happened before. Once again, my sincere apologies. (laughs) And then she responds, hi, Sonia, you won't believe this. The jury was a hung jury. They could not reach a verdict. A mistrial was declared. Therefore, we will get this case again. There is a status next Friday, the 24th. Please advise if you have any scheduling issues, any date after the 24th. Thanks literally apologizing, like what happened there? Clearly she, this is when, this is 2012. So this is when Sonia was really going downhill. Um, but apologizing for screwing up their cases is just, I don't know, kind of crazy.
2: Well, also you wonder what made her, uh, stumble on the stand. I have a a couple of theories for what might've been tripping her up on the stand, but, um,
1: I have an email here from February 3rd uh, I'm, and I'm sorry between Sonia and uh, Medea Wasserman again. She keeps screwing up poor Medea's cases and I'm sorry that I messed up the weight of the marijuana. I think I was too focused on the cocaine that my mind went blank on the stand. She was definitely too focused on the cocaine. Right. I, I'm normally much better at remembering everything I should. Right, Dr. Freud, call your office. <laughs> exactly. Wait, what was the I'm sorry, what was the date on that email? The date on this email is February 3rd, 2012.
3: 2012. Yeah. So the SJC had found that, you know, two years earlier, she was already completely out of control. So it's (laughs) sort of surprising that she was able to last that long without everything unraveling. But, you know, but you know
1: what on February 1st, uh, Medea said, Great job testifying. Sorry I didn't get to chat with you or meet with you before putting you on the stand. Sadly, we got uh, an NG based on the evidence, not guilty based on the evidence or a lack thereof try, tying the defendant to the drugs. And then that's when Sonia responded, I'm sorry I missed up the weight of the marijuana. Unbelievable. So, so clearly, she was just uh, at this point, just really. Um, but but they keep t- like commending her for her performances. It's crazy. It's again here in in uh, February of twenty or actually she responded, "You did great. No need to apologize. Lots of drugs to remember weights. Tough case. On to the next one. Thanks." <laughs> and and then yeah, they, they just go on and on. And there's to to me, th- this just speaks so clearly as to what, what was really going on between the and this in Sonia and the DAs and Annie and the DAs, uh, they, these weren't isolated incidents as we've gone on. This is the culture there. And honestly, this is still going on. This is not stopped. The, the transfer of these operations to the state police, if anyone out there believes for a single second that state police Chemists are somehow not biased towards state police prosecutors and aren't having these same exact conversations with these prosecutors, like uh, this this week or next week or whenever. Is I think deluding
2: themselves. Right, and interesting uh, footnote. The you know one of the things the OIG was they retested samples, but they were very careful, as best as I could tell, to avoid ever retesting a sample that the state police had tested originally. And, and I wonder if that's to make sure that you keep the lid uh, on, uh, on Sudbury because God forbid that you have a third lab that has inconsistent results um, with a, a, an actual accredited um, um, you know independent lab. Uh, so I thought that was interesting that that was part of the OIG methodology to say, well, if Sudbury tests it, we won't retest it under any circumstances.
1: And to me, that they, they keep saying that Sudbury's uh, reputation is beyond reproach. And I saw a, a video of Sudbury with no one wearing a single hairnet in the entire uh, lab, even though they were wearing lab coats and testing. Um, and the number one contaminant in a lab is human beings, especially human <laughs> hair. And they don't just the-
3: do drug testing in that lab. They do DNA stuff in Sudbury, right?
1: No, I, I thought at the time they did do drug testing. That's that's what they were saying. No,
3: no I, I, I'm saying they don't just exclusively do drug testing there.
1: Oh, no. Yes, they do. They do other testing as well. But this, but the an article on the news was after Annie Dukin was arrested, they went to show us what a real drug lab looks like. And so they went to Sudbury to show the drug lab operations there. And I saw chemists... Uh, just performing without the proper PPE. And it just really struck me. And I think that um, that that lab, if if it was put under the kind of scrutiny that we've seen, we would see very, very interesting results there because we already have, um, as we've seen with the 2014 Class E stuff, um, those labs were falsely identifying drugs as Class E that weren't Class E.
0: 36 times.
1: Yeah. So, right there, um, that's malfeasance. It's already been proven. And so, where there's one, I'm sure there's a mountain of stuff that we're not even seeing.
2: And amazingly, there's been no actual investigation of that issue. And the media, no. as far as I can tell, has, um, if they've touched it, it's been um, barely. Right.
1: Um, so, we, I, I want to just kind of go over, so Luke had brought up the, um, the, the standards, the, no, the fact that there was no concurrently run primary standards for most of the processing at Hinton. So, at the Hinton Drug Lab, analysts were expected to analyze data results by comparing an unknown with known authentic standards present in every single run. Positive identification is made uh, when the unknown and standard uh, had consistent retention times with plus 2.5% and mass spectral acquired in full-spectrum scam mode fragmentation patterns. The same rule applied at the other Commonwealth drug labs, not under the direction of the DPH. For example, in Worcester, class A, B, C, or D drugs had to be compared to concurrently run primary standards. And some protocols mandated the comparison of ion spectra and or retention time with reference standards. Asked whether she used to use uh, standards with her testing every time that she did a test or whether there was something locked into the machines that already gave her the pre-result. Farrakh testified that when she thought she had some positive oxycodone. She would run an oxycodone standard. On February 19th, 2010, Frock was assigned to identify the contents of a capsule, sample uh, number, blah, blah, blah. Amherst uh, draft protocol for the identification of the capsule suspected of containing class A, B, C, or D substance for an imprint identification, followed by GC screening and confirmation with MS. The procedure confirmed with uh, SWIG drug methods of analysis, drug identification. After Ferox, uh, Preliminary imprint analysis suggested that the sample contained oxycodone. She injected a portion of the sample in a vial and performed an instrumental analysis. The first vial in that run, as reflected by the sequence table, contained a, the lab standard cocaine and heroin mixture and was followed by a blank. The sequence table does not reflect that Farak that ran an oxycodone standard. It skipped a required part of the analysis. So th- this is this is just an example, but clearly these guys were not. So so was this just Sonia who was not running uh, these standards, Luke, or was that basic lab operations at at Amherst, to your knowledge? Standards cost money
0: they're they're really expensive. James Hanshed testified that he's like, "Do you have any idea how expensive heroin is?" <laughs> so we got their standard, they're like, their books, and and they just stopped purchasing them. Like around the time that Sonya Farrick showed up, so no, nobody was using the oxycodone
3: standard. Luke, I don't know if we've personally had this conversation before, but it's been discussed in previous episodes. If you go and look at USP's. Uh, catalogs for how much these things cost. It's like 70 bucks. It's like 70 to 150 bucks per whole vial. And that's not what they use for each run. They use like a microgram from the vial in each run. So I think we worked it out at some point. It's like $4 a test.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about the Amherst drug lab, what I think if you've ever read, Grapes of Wrath, or seen the movie where they've got like this family truckster that's always breaking down and they have to keep fixing it. And it's that's what it was like. I mean, they had these secondhand Hinton um, machines that they were just like, they were the, the mechanics. I mean, Sonia Ferrick was literally like plugging these things, they were using. Um, you know, the, the the standards for replacing these caps that you inject these things into call for like weekly replacements of these SEPTA. And they'd have them in there for six months. Uh, it, 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 was, it was on a university campus. It kind of had the feel of like a university dorm room. It was not a, a facility that had any any spare change. This was cash strapped in every sense of the word. So yeah, $4 a test might not seem like much, but for James Hanschett, uh, was, they, they just
2: didn't have it in the budget. And, and, uh, just not to gloss over something that's less important. Uh, but, um, the, the imprint analysis, I think was the phrase that was used. Uh, that sounds like something more than it is. That's actually just looking at a picture book of pills and picking the one that looks the most like this pill that is. It, uh, there hasn't been enough discussion about how that was an integral. And sometimes I, I understand, but I could be wrong. The sole part of a lot of classy identification was you open your big book of drugs and you flip through and you find and anyone who's ever taken a pill knows it doesn't say like ibuprofen on it. It'll Say like 500 or C12, or it'll be red with a little off centered line down the, the middle of it. I mean, you know, good luck claiming that that's scientific.
0: I mean, doesn't it sort of sound like dry labbing? <laughs> yes. That is. Yes. An it's very dry. It is yeah, very
2: it's very dry.
1: dry. <laughs> Not at all wet. No. Like a wet market. It, 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 dude, it's, it's the class e and that's why they did class e's That That's why they wanted to bucket everything they didn't know as a class E, because it wasn't an actual test. They're just looking at it and saying, yep, that's a class C, e. that's a drug, I saw it in this book. And it's like, well, did you bring the book to trial? Where did you see it in this book? What does that even mean? No one really ever a- asked that question, and they knew it. So they would just bucket everything that they didn't know or knew that was not illegal in Massachusetts into the class C e category. Now, Luke, do you know of any of these class Es um, that the general's office just- do, do you know of any of those cases? Have any been dismissed?
0: Um, I mean, they were dismissed if they were at the lab between... I, I honestly don't know. I mean, when the, the the inspector general came out with its supplemental um, report, I mean, that was... that. The way that was written was was really remarkable because that was a scandal. That whole whole report, like the, the underlying data, was scandalous, and it was just very blase. Um, but whether there was a, um, I mean, there were just there's just been so many convictions that have been vacated and dismissed. I I think the answer is yes that they've gone back and looked and realized oh all of these hundreds of sample cases where Chemists said it was classy when it's really not. We're off the books,
3: but yeah, yeah. There's never been a a report to that effect. At, At best, they said we notified the DAs, but like at the same time, you know, I was working with the ACLU on these negative drug cert cases, and we notified all the DAs in the state, and like. Three of them got back to us, something like that. So, like, just sending out a letter to the DA's association doesn't really cut it.
2: Right. And no, it doesn't. The other scandal of that supplemental OIG report was that, suddenly, between the first and second report, all the chemists lost their names, they just became a chemist. And, and probably that happened around the time that someone was writing the part where Annie Dukin and Sonia Farrak were emailing to conspire on how to lie about BZP certifications, uh, or where they were recounting how there were drugs that were uh, falsely rep- certified to be uh, illegal when they weren't, uh, that didn't involve Annie Dukin at all. So yeah, problem can, solved, can... just call them chemists.
3: Yeah, Yeah, you can go back for the supplemental report and the Hinton Drug Lab Evidence Database match up the sample numbers. It's not all Dukin cases that they mention in there. And there's no discussion of that fact at all in the supplemental report. It just makes it seem like Dukin is still the sole bad actor. You know, we found these, you know, half a dozen or a dozen uh, problematic cases, uh, we notified people and that's the end of the story. They don't tell you that uh, there were multiple cases with totally unrelated chemists who certified something as a drug when it was not a drug.
0: Yeah.
1: And
3: I mean, they, they're, don't,
1: they're, they don't say the attorney general's office had a whole investigation on it in two, 2014. We've shown that in, on this program, we showed the the email. Uh, it, it, it's unbelievable. And, and also they didn't, they never once mentioned the state police either that they were doing the same exact thing. They never once brought that up, which is mind boggling to me. Go ahead.
0: What's the
3: yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the,
0: the Duke and Farrah, you know, I think it was from April 23rd, 2011, where they're basically saying, you know how the master general laws are for keeping up with the times. I mean, it, it's, it is outrageous. But I think the thing that gets lost there is they're coordinating about how they're going to handle um, a case if the if chemists from these two labs are going to be on the same standards BZP case. And they're both basically saying, yeah, this is how we do it here. This is what my supervisor told me as to how we're going to do it. This is not two rogue chemists. This is two people who were later convicted of crimes, but they're just discussing lab policy, which is to deliberately mischaracterize a substance because state reps haven't gotten around to doing it. And and, and that's lab policy.
1: Yeah. And like you said, they were so blasé about it in the report, but what it really was, was they were coordinating to give false testimony, right? That's what they were doing. Right. Yeah, so... Uh, so, contamination. Has anyone discussed contamination uh, in association with the Amherst lab that you know of, Luke? No, I mean, again, uh, to
0: my great frustration, uh, the, the, from what I can tell, uh, you know, this is a very real danger, this idea that you have somebody who is... Uh, licking, snorting, smoking, eating uh, these substances in, in in these environments where um, the danger for cross contamination is is really enormous. And I mean, I think the you know what we know like ninety something percent of all of our uh, paper currency in the United States you you can test and they'll have traces of cocaine in it. Because that's what these substances, um, they're they're microscopic, and and if you're not careful with them, uh, they can end up places and and turn a a negative into a positive. But I I don't think anybody has, no judge, nobody wearing a black robe has seen fit to kind of go and and take that leap. I think the the low-hanging fruit has been, all right, the chemist was stealing the drugs and Smoke and the other one is is deliberately cooking the books. Let's just stick with that. The the science piece and the dangers of the, the shortcuts uh, like contamination is is never really been I think addressed seriously when it's in fact a, a huge problem.
3: All right, it certainly has never been addressed seriously. I just wanted to add when the litigation CPCS versus AG was going on. Uh, I got asked to submit an affidavit talking about how many samples and how many convictions might be in question. And the very last footnote I added was, well, gee, uh, she um, admitted to opening evidence bags in the evidence locker room and smoking crack therein. Um, Those might be contaminated. So as a result, I'm going to include... you know, those numbers of samples uh, into the analysis. And I think the next filing was something from the Attorney General's office conceding that from the summer of June 2012, they had no confidence in uh, the reliability of any of the samples because she had tampered with other people's uh, other chemists' uh, assigned samples and there's no way to track it down. So I mean, it was brought up at least once in the course of litigation, but they never had a forensic chemist come in and say, you know, gee, there is cocaine residue all over this wall. And, you know, it could have been here for years or there was never any introduction of studies into the records saying that cocaine can stick to surfaces for X amount of time. So there is never really any um, thorough investigation into it. But sort of it was a looming question. If she was in there cutting open bags and smoking crack, that's probably a problem. Probably. And, and it was also a problem. Oh, go, ahead.
2: go ahead. I think that was just a, a little bit of backup, some back echo.
1: Oh, okay. Um, it was also a problem if they, if chemists uh, stored their, Drugs in open containers, as we talked about last time with Annie Dukin, because there is, I believe, a 12-inch radius around, or at least uh, they did a study at Hinton about contamination and the 12-inch radius around an open container that could contaminate anything within that 12-inch radius, right? So... um, Drug residues, cocaine in particular, are not limited to the environments of the user. And Swig Drug recommends that work practices uh, that prevent contamination to make sure that you know you're you're operating in what's called a closed process where you don't have open containers next to each other, so that they can t- potentially uh, the the chemicals can waft from one contain- open container to the next and contaminate it. So Heather Harris testified that the fact that the chemists sometimes left samples unsealed in a Temporary safe introduced the opportunity for cross contamination to occur. And but that's not the only source of contamination. Carryover from prior GCMS runs could also result in cross contamination. This phenomenon occurs when an instrument retains an analyte that, in, uh, that interferes with the evaluation of a subsequent sample. Carryover may originate from the syringe, the injector line, uh, liner, the gold seal. Uh, the bead of the column or the contaminated blank. Carryover will have the same retention time for that analyte if it was normally injected. And negative control tests help prevent false positives. A blank is a type of negative control, it is a specimen not, not containing an analyte or other interfering substances. So that's why they ran blanks through these machines. It is typically made of the solvent that uh, the sample is dissolved in. And then the Hinton uh, protocol stated, quality control for the GCMS laboratory goes beyond tuning the detector. Operators must uh, ensure carryover does not exist between samples or between a standard and a sample. This is accomplished by running blanks, the solvent that the sample is dissolved in, between the vials before standards and samples. For blanks with carryover above the column bleed levels, the, sa- the following sample should be reanalyzed. After time, fresh blanks need to be prepared due to material leaching out of the cap spectrum. The written policy for the Drug Abuse Laboratory at the UMass Medical School in Worcester says all auto-sampler runs will have blanks before each sample. So basically, I'm not going to read all this, but you have to have blanks before each sample. Hanschert testified that they would run a blank after the standard. When or whether to enlist another blank depended on the individual. Hanschert testified there was no set pattern. It was really up to the individual. Uh, that James Hanschert and his, you know, he, he him and his quality standards... Uh, Hansch claimed that some individuals would use this discretion to go five, maybe 10 samples in a row before enlisting another blank. Hanchett acknowledged that some instruments are prone to carryover, especially when they're dirty or samples are overloaded. In his mind, an instrumental analysis of a blank sample took 10, 12 minutes to get nothing accomplished. <laughs>
3: I, love I mean, that it's guy. like saying, like stopping at a red light or a stop sign, <laughs> up to the individual driver, right? Yeah.
1: that's not how it it's works. It's their discretion, so, dude. And
0: when you do stop, you're not accomplishing anything. You're
2: <laughs> you're wasting time, <laughs> dude. Stop wasting my time with your quality bullshits. <laughs> and and by the way, it would have been possible, as a statistical matter, to look back at the runs on a, a sample by sample basis through each carousel and attempt to determine if there was statistical evidence of carryover. Uh, that could have been done. And I don't think that was even attempted. Uh, and so that's a, a, a concern because we assume, what, no contamination because no one checked?
1: Nope. Obviously, you know, you just hide under a bunch of coats and hope everything turns out okay. So on June 22nd, 2011, Farak ran a blank immediately after the cocaine heroin standard. The chrom- chromatography, uh, the the graph, indicated that the presence of three peaks, a clear sign of carryover. The spectra for the second peak had this profile, and you know I can I can share that out, but you guys have the the paperwork, and it shows the clear carryover there. And six months later, Pontus. Uh, initiated a gcms run or uh, consisting of cocaine heroin standard a blank and 18 unknown samples the blank registered two peaks because those peaks were so low pontes perceived no indication of contamination
3: that's not good
1: <laughs> but dude it's up to the chemist <laughs> Please don't don't introduce any kind of standards or standardized processing here. It is just up to the chemist. We got to keep then, this train moving,
2: right? And then eighteen samples in a uh, 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 you know, C samples in a row. So I wonder what that eighteenth one looked like.
1: <laughs> no contamination.
2: It had eighteen peaks.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so
0: you you've been reading from these joint proposed findings that we did in this case. Yes. Um, When when we had the hearing, uh, the the government brought in this guy named Robert Powers to testify that he thought the Amherst lab was fine. It was just fine. (laughs) His testimony was was like, don't worry about it. Just, it's fine. Uh, Or it was fine (laughs) because it's 2016 and it's all boarded up. So, you know, we're in the middle of this crazy hearing. And so my, this is my cross-examination of them. And I'm literally quoting. Uh, I'm showing you a copy of the party's joint proposed findings of facts, 70 pages long, referencing 147 exhibits. Have you seen this document before? No, I have not.
1: <laughs> Questions. Document? What? Wait a minute, I was just told to come here and say everything was fine and walk out. You're actually going to question me? We, we, did
0: this. we spent, you know, a, a healthy chunk of like a season. Like all of us, like Chris, you were involved in this. Rebecca was involved with it. Nathan was involved in it. 70-page thing, like you've been reading it. Like these are all examples right. of just in real big problems. And the expert on the other side who could have had this for months, never saw it and, and was perfectly comfortable offering the opinions
3: that he did. God. You know, what was was most upsetting to me was in, in Kerry's findings, as good as they were on the prosecutorial misconduct side, he totally got it wrong on swig drugs. Like, swig drug is recognized universally in federal courts and in state courts everywhere as the floor. As far as I know, Judge Kerry's opinion is the only opinion in the United States or anywhere else saying, it's fine to fall below swig drug uh, and you can still possibly have reliable results. And um, the reason that wasn't challenged uh, was as I was told by Jim McKenna, the remaining cases that weren't dismissed immediately as a result of Kerry's hearing were subsequently null Prost, so that there was no chance to appeal it. And I was sitting there in oral arguments and CPCS versus AG, and Justice Gaziano was like, well, you guys really liked the portion of his argument that was about the prosecutorial misconduct, but he's got all this other stuff about the lab, and I was just wanting to scream into a bag because no one had an opportunity to challenge it because the DAs all realized that it wouldn't pass muster, and that's why they cross the cases,
2: it's insane the thing that calls me the most about swig drug is that if you were like how do we follow swig drug step one is to have written protocols step one so we followed swig drug except for getting any of the steps from one on correct i mean i don't i, I don't understand how you could even say you follow it
0: yeah, I, I think of swig drug as like swimming in the ocean and you've got like a nostril above water. Like that's swig drug. If you're below swig drug, you are drowning.
1: Yeah. Swig drug is the bottom line, it's the basement. It's, it's, it is not your standard. And they couldn't even hit that. But, but it's, it, that's beyond the point. Like, like to, you, to what you're, the point that you've made over and over again, Luke, is that this is a confidence scheme in that these labs basically existed to generate a certificate that said this was heroin or this was cocaine. That's why these labs existed. What they were actually doing to get there didn't really matter in the mind of the state. It didn't matter to Julianne Nasif. It absolutely did not matter to her. And it didn't matter to the people who were running the labs for the most part. And that is why this occurred because it when when the state police took over um that was after dukin was fired and it like all hell broke loose when dukin was let go because then they actually started looking into what these people were doing and they were like oh my god and they just swept it all under the rug and blamed the the girl with the funny name and then you know of course sonia had to go and mess everything up by getting caught you know smoking crack at her desk and in the parking lot of a court. And, uh, and then they had to blame her too. But of course, never ever has the public really understood exactly what was going on in these labs. And it's clearly not just these two chemists. I mean, we can all agree on that, right? So my question to everyone is, how are any of these convictions that were uh, got that? Were obtained through the testing at these labs still holding? Why has not? Why do you think all of these will ever be dismissed? Do you think that's the end result of this?
3: Uh, well, most recently there was a SJC oral argument in the case of Connelly Henry. That's uh, about the issue of the remaining Ducan cases. So there were about three hundred of them, and that case was basically about. You know, how litigation should proceed. Um, I don't have to get into the specifics, but once we get an answer from the SJC about that, that will really clarify that entire issue. As far as Ferrick, um, you know, uh, uh, there's ongoing litigation as to the several thousand cases that she worked on at Hinton. Um, we've been working on for years, trying to get all the information that the Inspector General's Office had. I think we have enough at this point in time in order to demonstrate prosecutorial misconduct, and if not that, we still have enough to um, vacate these cases. You know, uh, basically the fact that she was performing or reported performing more analyses than any Dugan ever and the government knew about it within months of her arrest, I think that should be enough. You know, they didn't put it in their report. They never even mentioned Farrick, except in a footnote in the OIG's report. And they knew while the Cato and Ware cases were being litigated, that, you know, an expert hired by the government said that her numbers were potentially indicative of fraud. The SJC didn't have that in front of it in... 2015, and I think when they look at it again, knowing that they've been duped, uh, I think that might be a game changer. Um, as far as the the rest of the stuff that went on at the Hinton Lab, I know Jim McKenna is very interested in the issue of, you know, the failure to investigate with, uh, you know, that same expert saying that numerous other chemists at the lab should have been looked at very closely because their numbers were similar to Dukin's for various periods in time. You know, I'm not sure where that's going to go but that might result in relief for additional people. But, um, you know, I, I I can't but hope that the remaining Farrick defendants get some relief because at this point in time with everything the government's withheld, you know, they they deserve it. Right. Right.
1: To me, it goes beyond just Farrakhan and Dukan, though, right? It's got at some point, it's got to extend to every single case in both of these labs. But that's just me. So, closing remarks. Let's go around. Um, ju- just about you know this whole. I mean, y- you guys can can uh, craft something that you want, but just closing remarks on what we've learned after years of of uh, looking at these cases between what the government says and what was actually going on. Uh, Ilias, if you want to start.
2: Well, you, your question reminds me of the final scene in Burn After Reading where the CIA agents say, well, what did we learn from this? I don't know, but we won't do it again. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's what happened here. I think uh, the, 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 the lesson is that when you consciously allow people to run amok and you consciously protect them and you don't investigate, and you lie. This is what happens. And we still don't know the full truth, but this is obviously a, a vulnerability in any system. Uh, and so uh, not to tease uh, a possible second season, but we have a few things that are still going to unfold. Uh, I think there's are some uh, a, a members of the AG's office or former members that are uh, uh, going to get some news at some point. Uh, and there's some cases that are pending that Chris alluded to. And, uh, and, and, and Luke, you may have some thoughts that uh, as well. So there's stuff that could happen that we, you know, will we'll get further insight. Uh, I doubt we'll ever have a reinvestigation, but that's what I would like to see a reinvestigation specifically of how the OIG got this spectacularly wrong and yet still gave itself a lot, uh, lots of accolades.
1: Right. And Luke, what, what are your uh, closing thoughts? What have we learned here?
0: Yeah, I mean, I go back, I remember. Um, In 2009, the National Academy of Science published this book, Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, A Path Forward. And two of my heroes in the profession of criminal defense, uh, Stephanie Page and Kathy Bennett, who were at CPCS for many, many years, went to a conference right after, I, I think it was before the report actually came out. And they were kind of getting a preview of it, and they came back and they looked like they had seen a ghost. It, they were really just mortified as to what was passing for science in courtrooms across the Commonwealth and across the country. And it, I'm reminded of it uh, from time to time as we have conversations like this. That um, this this was foreseeable. This was something that. Um, yeah, and it was, was was there and it was going to happen. And I continue to think that for as outrageous as this is, um, you know, this is not just something that happened in Massachusetts. I think we are in in, in some ways a, you know, a fortunate place like Chris and I were able to devote huge parts of our professional lives as well as other attorneys like Rebecca Jacobs um, to, to digging in and rolling up our sleeves in ways that the way we fund criminal defense across the country, there are some states and jurisdictions that are called meet them and plead them. Uh, You meet You have such heavy caseloads that it's impossible to, you know, even talk to an alibi witness, let alone look at, you know, ask for discovery from a, a crime lab. So I think that this is... Uh, something that is isn't important in its own right, it, it, the, the, the tens of thousands of lives that were affected, um, uh, is, is is the ripple effects of that are extraordinary. But I, I really hope that um, you know the examination that you and Ilias have done uh, with this season uh, of rigged uh, contributes to this ongoing conversation that helps people understand that these places all across the country. Are doing stuff like this, and it's only a matter of time before um, these these things detonate. And when they do, the the the, the ramifications are pretty profound.
3: Very well said. And uh, Chris, final thought: um, yeah. the cops and the government—they lie all the time. Don't fucking trust them. <laughs> <laughs> it, right. That. It, very well said. It's
1: true, and for me, it's the to me, it's always like the amount of time and money that was spent on bogus investigations that could have just been given to poor people to help them uh, rather than to lock them in jail is 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 really what rings and resonates for me. Like we, we could be as a society helping people rather than this bullshit flim flam uh, drug war that that we insist on you know, persecuting just to line the pockets of people and pretend that, you know, their jobs matter and that they're actually doing a service for society when all they're doing is making everything worse. And I think that's exactly what we had here. I think that's exactly what goes on is, and it continues to go on because people are pumped full of fear. We've read those articles at the beginning of the of the program and that is the modus operandi. The Boston Globe does it. All these no, news organizations do it. They They pump people full of fear and pretend that we need this drug war when what we should be doing is funding these communities of these minority communities that are poor, that need help. We don't give them Cops in jails, we give them resources so that they can thrive. And that to me is the biggest takeaway that I took from this that we've spent now hundreds of millions of dollars. Chris, I know you estimated it, and Luke, I'm sure you would come up with a similar estimate. It's like $100 million. Yeah, on this nonsense. And, and like I have, I've spent 500 bucks on FOIAs, and like in, in this, this program has come to more like conclusions that are probably closer to, I don't think we'll ever know the truth, but they're closer to the truth than what we've been told. And so just to conclude, it just, as Chris, as Chris said, you know, they're liars and you can't trust them. And that goes for the media, that goes for the people that go on trial and that goes for basically everyone. And as Luke said, Massachusetts is not alone. We're a liberal state, supposedly. I can only imagine what Alabama and Texas are like with this kind of stuff. So that's where I'm going to leave it. Um, hopefully, we'll, we'll probably do a season two. We'll, we'll think about it. But um, for now, thank you so much, guys. This has been wonderful. Thank you for the support. Thank you for coming on and helping with this, Luke. Um, you've been great it, you know talking to me over the years and helping with this it's been just so awesome Chris and Ilias. you guys are amazing it's been wonderful working with you um, thank you so much yeah thank you yeah I'll talk to you soon alright thanks guys alright bye now have a good night thank you for listening to the
0: rig podcast if you enjoyed this episode make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out